title tonight is Into the Invisible. The Invisible. And 2 Corinthians 4 verse 18 says, We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. You might put it, we look not at the things that are visible, but the things that are invisible. We've got our eyes and our attention focused on the things that we can't see. And that is what we're going to be talking about this weekend, are the things that we cannot see with our eyes, although it can certainly break in and be seen, just like the wind. You can't see the wind, as Jesus said, but you can certainly see the effects of the wind. And that verse right there carries with it a whole wealth of philosophical information, the most basic of which is that Christianity is supernaturalism. We believe, as Christians, that more exists than what we see. We believe that there is more to this world than what can be measured and observed and calculated and sensed with your five senses. The Bible makes this distinction over and over again. You hear it so much, you can even start to gloss over it, which means you take it for granted. And that's okay, because that's what we're supposed to believe. That there's a distinction between flesh and spirit. That the flesh is the body, it's this world. And in some contexts, flesh is, is described sinfully, but in most it just means the things that exist, like your, your body, your actual flesh, as opposed to your spirit or your soul, meaning the things that are invisible. You have physical and non-physical parts of you. It also uses that distinction, the visible and invisible. And this is a rather radical position to take in this day and age. It's becoming less so, actually, if you're paying close attention. But there's still that default position of the American worldview is what we call naturalism with a capital N. We just said Christianity is supernaturalism. But the world believes in naturalism, which means the only thing that exists are things that are natural. If you want to use the distinction I just laid out, flesh exists... Spirit does not. Seen exists. Unseen does not. If we cannot detect it, cannot write a formula for it, you cannot see it and handle it with your hands, it does not exist. And because this is the world's basic position, kind of even people that are open to supernatural things will say, all right, but you don't got to prove to me that this desk is in front of me, but I'm going to need some proof to believe that God exists. You can see right there which way the scales are balanced. Whereas you go somewhere else, perhaps, and they might believe in the gods more than they are sure that they're standing right in front of you. So Christians who are supernaturalists, of course, can work overtime, unfortunately, to explain away or find out what is the minimum amount of supernatural things I have to believe in order to be a Christian. You ever come across this person or been this person before? What's the bare minimum I've got to affirm that is supernatural in order to be a Christian? Well, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you that it's a pretty long list because that's not how the Bible describes the world. We do need to realize that, though, we're the weirdos. Philosophically and throughout history, we're the weird ones. And even around the world today, what do you mean you don't believe in God? What do you mean you don't believe in angels? What do you mean? This is ridiculous. Even in the church, 
you know, when we share miracle stories, hey, God provided this or God healed that. If there's no specific natural explanation for it, rather than get excited, we get uncomfortable because we don't know what to do with it. Say, hey, man, that $5,000 came in the mail just on time. We go, praise the Lord, God is so good. Say, hey, man, somebody had cancer. We laid hands on them and the cancer's gone. Okay. <laughs> have you seen the x-rays yourself? Does this person have a history of lying? What did the doctor say? Even though there's plenty of room in the scripture for that to be absolutely true. And it's not even that we don't believe it, but the threshold to accept it is so much wider. But it's not how the Bible lays it out. But there's another thing, too. There's another problem that can kind of keep us from fully walking into the invisible, as I say, is that there are some very strange people that they take the Bible's teachings on what is supernatural and they go way off the rails with it. There are various cults that really like the Bible because it affirms certain aspects of what they believe. You know, voodoo, for example, in the island countries, takes the Bible and me meshes it with all the, uh, all the magic and the practices they had there. The Gnostics did something similar in the early days of the church. They took their own supernatural worldview and took bits of the Bible and brought it over. There also have always been aberrant Christians that feel like they can wield the Holy Spirit like they're, they've got a superpower or something. And they can command God to do things and walking around more like wizards than pastors. And we see that or we see people violating the commandments God has given us over how to do these things. And we say, well, I don't want anything to do with that. I might technically have to believe it because the Bible says it, but I don't want anything to do with this. Well, that is what I'm trying to help us avoid this weekend. Out of a love for God and a faith in his word, we affirm the existence of the invisible as Christians. And I'm calling us this weekend not to have a minimalist view of the invisible, but if we want to put it this way, a biblical view. What does the Bible say about these things? And the thing is, once you start looking at what the Bible says about these things, you'll find that it's pretty wide open and wonderful, my friend. So let's walk through this. What are some things that are invisible that the Bible says are true and that we then need to believe? The first one is that we believe in God. We believe in God. We believe in an omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, he's everywhere, omnibenevolent, he's only good, self-existent, meaning nobody made him, triune creator and Lord of all things. That's God. The Bible does not ever take the time to explain to you how we know God is real. It starts out with him, and then it says, if you don't believe, then you're a fool. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. It hardly needs to be said that Christians believe in God. Although there are some Christians that, so-called Christians, that think, well, do we really need to believe in God to be a Christian? Yes, you do. I, I read a biography this year of Oliver Wendell Holmes, who uh, grew up in the pre-Civil War area, era, when up in Boston, when they were talking about the Unitarian movement that was blowing through the church at that time. And people were trying to separate the good deeds of a Christian from the doctrine of a Christian. And you didn't even need to believe in God and how the author described how at the time that was such a radical thing to say. But over just a decade or two, people were like, I mean, really, as long as you, you know, are kind to your neighbor, then what difference does it matter if God is real? I think we're reaping the fruits of that philosophy now generations later. 
But if we're Christians, we believe in God. That's like basic, right? That's level one. The Bible is God's story, not ours, although we certainly feature into it. What else do we believe in? Number two, we believe in the existence of what we'll call the heavenlies. This is a biblical term, heavenlies. This is the Bible's description of another realm that exists beyond what we can observe with our flesh. In 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17, Elisha uh, had been causing trouble for the, the king of their enemies. So he sent an entire army to arrest him. And when his servant saw that they were surrounded, he started to freak out. And so Elijah said, don't worry, pal. We got more on our side than they do. And his servant was like, the old man is finally cracked. He's no idea what he's talking about. He said, Lord, 2 Kings 6.17, open his eyes that he may see. And this servant caught a glimpse into the supernatural. He got to see chariots of fire encamped all around the city. And I wonder if he said, is this what you see all the time? Maybe he didn't. Maybe he just wanted him to be able to see with his eyes what Elisha saw through faith. The point is, there's another world. God lives there. It's, it is a substantial part of creation. It's an invisible world that you might say overlaps our own. That there are things going on that we cannot see. That, that it's not just that God is out there somewhere in the void outside of creation. There is another world that the Bible calls the heavenlies. Paul especially likes that term in the book of Ephesians. We are seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. So we believe in God. We believe in the existence of a spiritual world. Number three, we believe in angels. I saw one actor on TV one time absolutely scoffing at the fact that most Americans still believe in angels. Can you imagine such a thing? Well, most people do. You're the weird one, my friend. What is an angel? We're going to talk more about spiritual warfare and a lot of these things in greater detail. But just to give you a basic definition, there are personal beings that exist as spirits in the heavenly places. We don't just believe in the heavenlies. We believe that the heavenlies are populated just as the physical world is also populated with people. That there are angels that live there. Ephesians 3 verse 10 says salvation was given to demonstrate God's glory to those that dwell in the heavenlies. Talking about angels. Now there are both benevolent and holy angels as well as fallen angels. The Bible will use that term angel, which just means messenger to apply to both groups. But we say that a fallen angel is what we call a demon so there are good angels and bad angels. And the bad angels have a leader named Satan, who is fearsome and strong, but he's just another angel. He's just another demon. Don't ever compare him to the Lord because they are of a different kind from one another. And the Bible tells us that there are innumerable angels who have names, who have a purpose. They have rank. They have power. So not only do we believe in God, we believe in the spiritual world, and that spiritual world is inhabited by angels. There are people that live there, spirit beings that live there. Number four, we believe in miracles. We believe that God is able to affect the physical world from the spiritual world in order to bring about an action in the physical that could not happen otherwise. So there are some that say, if you believe in a miracle, you are a nonsensical person. Because we know how the laws of physics work, and they don't happen. It doesn't break like that. People don't walk on water. 
The easiest response to that is, yeah, we know. That's why it's a special story. <laughs> People don't rise from the dead. Are you crazy? Like, yeah, we know. That's why there's an entire religion built around this. <laughs> because it doesn't happen. Miracles. That God affects the physical from the spiritual. He also delegates that power to his angels to do that sometimes. And he uses his people in the physical to bring those things about. Mark 16, 17. We'll read this later. But he gives a long list of all the signs that would accompany those who believe in Jesus. These include things like healing. When the body is healed in an instant. Provision for financial or, or safety needs. Protection. So many missionaries have amazing stories of how God just blinded the eyes of the people that were looking for them. Natural wonders. Things like the Red Sea parting and fire coming down from heaven. Jesus said, if you have enough faith, you can tell that mountain to be removed and thrown into the sea. Doesn't seem like anybody's had that much faith yet, but maybe we could someday. Miracles, that we believe that God lives in the heavenlies with his angels and that the realms interact with one another. And we call these miracles. Keeping going here, we also believe in the soul. The soul. We also call this the spirit. The Bible is not so dogmatic on what these terms specifically mean. What I, what I mean by this is that there is a part of every human being that is immortal and spiritual. That there are angels who are entirely spiritual. But you and I are living incarnate souls. That we are capable of detecting, affecting, and experiencing the supernatural. That's why the book of Hebrews says the word of God is living and active. Pierce even to the division of soul and spirit. That the Bible, the Bible cuts you open. It cuts through what's physical and down into your very heart. Now, most people, I think, even if they would say they don't believe in God, believe that there is, there is a, a spiritual component to a person. That's why like, even atheists get into Buddhism and things like that, which you know, baffles me, but that's a religion that doesn't ask very much of you. I'll just put it that way. That, but we, we know that because we have a soul, that's evidence that God exists, that God is there, that the spiritual world is there, and that we are able to know God. We're able to speak to God. We're able to encounter the Holy Spirit. Now, our souls have atrophied and been affected negatively because of sin. Whereas before Adam walked in the garden with God in the cool of the day, after that, the knowledge of God began to fade. And Romans talks about how we have suppressed the truth. Ephesians talks about how our hearts become calloused, anesthetized against the things of God. And that when the Holy Spirit comes and fills your life, the first thing he does is regenerate your soul. And your spirit starts to come back to life. And you can now encounter God like you couldn't before. So there's this whole spiritual world that exists and you are able to interact with it, experience it, de detect it, and even affect it. What do you mean I can affect the spiritual world? Well, here's the next thing we believe in. We believe in prayer. That we can speak to God in the heavenlies and receive an answer from Him. That when we pray... He listens to us, that he responds to us, that conversation is possible between God and man. Because if God is omniscient and God is omnipresent, there's nowhere where God cannot hear your prayers. David realized this, that he couldn't even run from God if he wanted to. Joel, or Joel Jonah tried it and it didn't work for him. 
There is an ongoing conversation between our spirit and the Holy Spirit of God. And the more you come to know God, the more you come to realize that the seemingly random thoughts that you have are not random at all, but it's the Holy Spirit of God speaking to you. We believe in prayer, not just as we're going to talk about in a minute as a form of therapy, to make yourself feel better about things, but that if God is able through his angels and his power to affect the physical world through these miracles, and we have a spirit that can interact with God, then we ought to pray and call upon God to do those things in the world. But that's only possible if we have this next one. We believe in salvation. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That the Son of God, who was seated in the heavenly places, became a man and entered the physical world. He became flesh. He did not just appear to be a man. He became and remains a man. Just as he remains the God of the universe. That his death on the cross was enough to save our souls from a place called hell. So tied into this is the, the destinations of heaven and hell that we're going to spend forever in a spiritual place called hell or a spiritual and physical place called heaven. Matthew 25, 46, Jesus said, those that believe, the righteous, will go away into eternal life, but those who have rejected him into everlasting fire. If you put your faith in Jesus, you are regenerated. It's like the, the shock thing that they do, the defibrillator. That's what it's called, shock thing. <laughs> that's, that's what the rest of us who didn't go to medical school call it, the shock thing. You know, when your heart, when your heart stops beating, clear, and your heart stops beating again. That's salvation. Your soul, your spirit is dead. And the spirit comes and brings it back to life when you put your faith in Jesus by the power and the blood of the Lord. And that's why everything begins to change. Some of the men we've seen in the prison ministry get saved are completely different. We didn't do anything. God did something in them. Your soul is then saved and restored, and then when you die, your soul is safely carried to the place you're going to spend eternity. Now, that's not all that the Holy Spirit does. We believe in the spiritual gifts, and I'm rolling the baptism of the Spirit into this one. That God Himself, the Holy Spirit, comes to dwell within us. That He not only regenerates our heart, He takes up residence in our heart. That He lives there and begins to transform us from the inside out, but also to empower us for the work. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good, or the profit of all, for edification. That each one of us, who is a believer in Jesus, is given a miraculous endowment of power. And that it's different for every person. It ranges from encouragement to speaking in tongues, from mercy to prophecy, that the Holy Spirit begins to use you in your flesh through your connection to the Spirit by the Holy Spirit to affect God's will in the physical. Somebody say cool. <laughs> that is pretty cool. That there's this separation, there's this distinction that was broken the, the bridge was broken because of sin. God repairs it, fills you up with His power, and now sends you out to start affecting things in the world around you. Those are spiritual gifts. And the last one here, this is very important, and it might not even seem to belong in this category, but it's important. We believe in faith. Faith. What do I mean by this? Your trust and your belief in these things is inextricably tied to your experience of these things. 
I say that again. Your belief and trust in these things is inextricably tied to your experience of these things. Blind men came to Jesus and said, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. And in Mark 9.29, Matthew 9.29, he said, according to your faith, be it done to you. Sometimes we wish God would not say that to us. Lord, because I ain't got that much faith. But when Jesus showed up in Nazareth to preach to his hometown, it says even he could do no great work there, for they did not believe in him. Faith matters. And I know that doctrine has been abused, that people will tell people, well, if you had had more faith, this wouldn't have happened to you. And it's really unfair how that's done, but that does not deny the fact that sometimes that's true. And sometimes the reason why things do not happen is because we had no faith. You have not, James said, because you ask not. One disciple walked on water, the one that believed he could. And the minute he stopped believing he could, he sank. Now, if you are of perhaps a more a theological bent that is more, would prefer that I emphasize the sovereignty of God more here, all I can say is if you read the Bible, that's how it works. God is all-powerful, but God uses people, and God expects His people to believe. And Jesus rebuked His disciples more often than anything else for having no faith. I say, well, listen, you can't just go around telling people that they don't experience God because they don't believe. I can and I must, for that is what Jesus said. We just, in Peru, I spent two weeks going through the Gospel of John. The main theme of the Gospel of John is that Jesus did enough works that these people should have believed his words. And John gives some of the most cryptic and mysterious and hard to understand teachings that Jesus gave. But all of this was that so they might believe. And over and over again, he says, you don't believe yet? There comes a point, friends, where you're going to have to take a step and choose to believe. Faith in the natural world has great power in the supernatural world. Now perhaps there's more things we could add to this list, but I think this is a pretty good start here, isn't it? It is clear from the Bible that each one of these things are real. You, you cannot come look at this and say, well, I don't know if the Bible says that miracles exist. They're everywhere in the Bible. I don't know if you can come at it and say, oh, I don't know if I believe in salvation. That's kind of the whole point of the Bible. That all of these things are there and we agree with them. And we're, when we hear them in the context of Paul or Peter or Elijah or David, we say, hallelujah, praise Jesus. But this next step is so important. We affirm that there is no substantial difference between the times of the Bible and today. Especially the days of the New Testament. That the things that were experienced in Scripture are given as a template and an example for the church throughout history, especially the book of Acts and the epistles. Peter said in Acts 2.39, when he was talking about salvation and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he said, these things are for you and your children and all who are afar off and everyone whom our Lord our God will call. So how long are these things to last? As long as there's people getting saved, that's how long. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-21 says, Do not quench the Spirit. Comparing the Holy Spirit to a fire. Don't take a big bucket of water and pour it out on the fire. There are some families and Christians and denominations that have spent decades and generations quenching the Holy Spirit. And here's the wonderful thing. Have you ever tried to put out a campfire before? It's not like in the movies 
where you can just pour a little bucket of water and walk away. That thing will burn forever. You ever use a burn barrel before? You might as well just let it smolder because you're going to go past your bedtime if you try to put it out all the way. That's the wonderful thing about the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit, even when we have sinned and grieved Him and quenched Him, He is ready to get back if you will allow Him to blow the wind of the Spirit upon that fire. But when you spend all your time stomping, oh, there's a spark, stomp that out. Oh, dump dirt on this one. We're going to need more water, fellas. It's going to be harder to revive that. But our Lord can send down fire from heaven and, and burn up a soaking wet altar. So don't despair here. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything, right? That's what we're going to do this week. We're not just going to say, let's run wild and do anything we want and call it the Holy Ghost. Test everything and hold fast to what is good. I'm calling us today to liberate ourselves from the belief that this scientific age has that we have to miss out on the wonders of God. I have felt this before. I had no biblical reason to feel it, but I felt it just the same. Say, why do I have to live today instead of the days where God was doing mighty, amazing works? And why couldn't I have walked with Peter or Paul and seen, as it says, unusual miracles? Don't you love that, that Luke takes the time to... Now, God did many unusual miracles through Paul. You know, when Peter's walking by, people would try to touch his shadow to get healed. That's unusual. That's extraordinary. But the thing is, when if you start thinking, well, that was for then, this is for now, what biblical basis do you have for such a statement? The answer is none. That these things are continuing even to this day. And even there's another layer of this where you say, well, I believe that they happen on the mission field because we get so many testimonies, you just can't deny it any longer, right? But we don't need it here. We don't have it here. You kidding me? We don't need it here? My generation needs it. I'll put it that way. We believe in these things, that all these things exist even unto today. That they're in the hand of the Lord, but there's an awful lot that we can do to make ourselves ready to receive these things from the Lord. And in case you're new around here, I will tell you, Calvary Chapel, as an association, affirms all of these things. This is not unique, what I'm teaching among our movement. We are a charismatic movement. And some folks don't want to use that word because there's some wacky people. Well, we're also pre-trib rapture, and there's some wacky people that believe that, too. We also believe in all manner of doctrines that there's some strange people. We don't believe things because of who's on our team. We believe them because of what the Word says. And not only is that just our doctrinal position, and it is, but that's our heritage, too. We especially believe in the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, that nothing has changed in the way the Holy Spirit works now from when He did in the book of Acts. This is the best time to be alive if you want to experience the Holy Spirit's power. We believe in His baptism for the church. We believe in all of His gifts. Calvary Chapel affirms healing and tongues and prophecy. In fact, Calvary Chapel was born out of a mighty revival wherein many such things were seen. Some of y'all saw the Jesus Revolution movie. I know some of y'all came in and you saw the documentary that we showed. There's remarkable things happening. Amazing testimonies of healings and dreams and visions and miracles and unusual things, shall we say. It was a revival. And these signs and wonders gave rise to a church culture that relied upon the Holy Spirit. And that has always been Pastor Chuck's way anyway, was that we believe in these things and we wait upon Him. And if you grow up getting saved with all this stuff around you, what are you going to say? No one's going to talk you out of it later. 
If God healed your body, like I used to have cancer, now I don't, no one's going to be able to come up to you and say, God doesn't exist. Like, uh, sorry, pal. Like, well, I want to see the receipts. Like, well, my receipt's right here. And I, I, like the man in John 9, well, I once was blind, but now I see. What do you want me to say? <laughs> However, because there were certain excesses that came up around the Calvary Chapel movement, there was a separation that took place among some, the vineyard movement, that were, were more concerned with the signs and wonders than they were with the teaching of the Word of God. And that led to a reaction against even the legitimate works of the Holy Spirit in Calvary Chapel. Not in our doctrinal position, but more in the, the working out of these things. Maybe we shouldn't have an afterglow after all. Maybe we shouldn't teach on these things quite so much. I won't be able to get the wrong idea. And I'm not casting sh shade here. I've heard these from godly men that were there and have participated in it and have told me this. Because now, unfortunately, it is not uncommon for Calvary Chapel churches to neglect the invisible, to neglect the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in exchange for something good, which is the sound teaching of the Word. Now, you all know you've been here a while. We like that. We like the sound teaching of the Word. We love solid Bible study. But listen, if you study your Bible, that should lead you to an open and excited perspective on the things of the Spirit. When you read through the Bible, all the things I just listed, it's like, wow, that's in here too? Does it say that it's good for me? It does say that it's good for me. But if you have a concern or a bias or even a necessary caution against certain things, we can overcorrect and we can start to dry up. We can dry up. And that is unfortunate that while Calvary Chapel as a movement still affirms these things, still believes these things, it's getting more and more common for people to say, I don't know that I've ever heard somebody speak in tongues before. We've never had a prayer meeting. My pastor was concerned that if we did that, there might be excess. We don't really know what to do with these things. When I mention some of the stuff that God has done here, people will take me aside and talk to me for hours. Okay, so what was that like? Tell me about it. Because fewer people have seen it, we might have an affirmation of these things according to the scriptures, but we haven't encountered them for ourselves. You know, there's a position in the church that is, uh, I heard this at Liberty all the time, uh, open but cautious. Have you heard that one to the gifts of the Spirit? Which I have learned is code for just cautious. <laughs> I used to razz my friends about that. I'd say, well, are you open or are you cautious? Which is it? Well, you know, what they, what they mean by that is, well, if God grabs me by the scruff of the neck and makes me speak in tongues, I'm not going to fight him on it. But that's not what the Bible tells us to have. What does the Bible say our attitude should be on supernatural things? How about open and excited? 1 Corinthians 14.1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. But not the supernatural ones, right? Finish the verse. Especially that you may prophesy. Bible tells you what to want and it tells you to want the spiritual gifts and to want prophecy on the same level with pursuing love so many people they say you know chapter 12 is about spiritual gifts chapter 14 is about spiritual gifts love is in the middle that's the most important thing forget spiritual gifts just love people but 1 Corinthians 14 was says pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 14, 39. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now most of us got that decently in order thing down pat, 
We're great. Gold star for us for being decent and in order. But do you got all things going on? Is there room for all things? Is, does anybody who has the gift of tongues even have a chance to speak up? Where is this gift to be used? What about if somebody has a prophetic word? What if somebody has a vision or a dream? Where is that to be shared in the church? And I know there's plenty of excesses related to this, but we're only interested in what the Word says. As part of our heritage as Calvary Chapel, and more than that, as part of our commitment to the Word of God, we have to engage with the invisible, with the supernatural. Now, as soon as I say that, you know, engage with the supernatural sounds like a weird book that they're selling in the, the tabloid section at Walmart on your way out. Most of us get nervous. And maybe some of y'all are here because like, look, Tyler, I respect you. I like this church. I just, I don't know about this stuff though. So I'll come, but just don't expect me to do nothing about it, okay? There's no need to get nervous, guys. The most basic way that you encounter God in the heavenly places is to pray. And this is where we're going to focus for our last few minutes here, is to pray. If you believe in God, then prayer is not just verbal therapy. This is that, you know, people say, well, I have, I have mindfulness that I do every day. Or I practice gratitude. Gratitude to what? I'm happy. Usually it's like rich people that do this. Have you noticed that? God, I thank you that I'm so beautiful and that my house is $10 million. And I thank you for that Maserati in the garage. And I'm, I'm grateful. It's like, okay, fine. To whom? Right? And sometimes even the Christians will get into prayer is not about changing things, about changing you. Now listen, that point is well taken. I get it, right? That we don't want to be sitting there giving Jesus our Christmas list like Santa Claus or something. But Jesus made it very plain that if you ask, you will what? Receive. Receive. In fact, he said, everyone who asks receives. It's a real connection to the supernatural. And in fact, everything we're going to talk about this week, with maybe a few small exceptions will be done, as far as I'm concerned, under the umbrella and the context of prayer. That if the church is praying, if a Christian is praying, these things begin to flow. What is prayer? I already said it, but it's talking to God and receiving His divine help. We might ask the question, well, what right do I have to pray? Atheists love this question. Even if God is real, then what, what do you think He's going to listen to you for? Yo, they're right. They've got a point. Because we're so full of sin, we cannot approach God. How dare you come to the Lord and ask Him for something after you have ruined His universe? You know, you've tracked mud into His house with sin. The third, though, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has shed His blood to grant us access to the Father to pray. Why should God listen to you? Well, because He listens to Jesus. And Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And now He lives in my heart. And He has granted me access to pray like He does. Here's my favorite verses in the Bible right here. John 14, 12 through 14. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, I know I've done this before, we're going to do it again. Raise your hand if you believe in Jesus. All right, this verse is about you. Whoever believes in me, not apostles, not pastors, not missionaries, y'all, will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You have the same access that Jesus had to be heard by the Father. And Jesus said in the Gospel of John, verse 11, chapter 11, he said, Lord, I thank you that you've heard me. 
And I know that you always hear me. But I've said this for the benefit of those who are listening. How do we benefit from that? If Christ is always heard by God and we pray in Jesus' name, then how often are you heard by God when you pray? All the time. Now, there's that verse 13 says, If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. And some people grab hold of that clause and they say, Aha, see? You can't just pray for anything. The Father has to be glorified in the Son by what you ask. And since you can't know what God wants, you shouldn't ask for anything. Way to gut that verse, huh? But listen, that's not the emphasis there. He's not saying that you can only ask for things that will glorify God. I mean, you should, but that's not the point he's making here. His point is, when you ask and receive, that's what glorifies my Father. Because it demonstrates that I did die, I did rise from the dead, and I've granted it to you to also ask and receive. It's not telling us to be very careful what you ask for. It's telling us God is going to be glorified because now you can come and ask for whatever you need and receive it. You'll do greater works than him, he said. And some people, again, want to get cute with this one. Well, you see, Jesus never led anybody to salvation. That was for the apostles to do. No, if you read John carefully, that word for works, erga, is repeatedly used to refer to the miraculous signs that Jesus was doing. The seven signs of John. This tells us the upper limit of our prayers. That even the kinds of works that were done by Jesus are available for those who put their faith in Him. Mark 16, He said, These works will follow those who believe. They'll lay hands on the sick. They'll recover. They'll cast out demons. They'll pick up venomous snakes and get bitten and it won't hurt them. They'll drink poison and it won't kill them. They're going to go all around the world doing what Jesus did. And then the book of Acts narrates them doing exactly that. And here we are following in their train. We are intended to be the continuation of Christ's ministry with His same Holy Spirit in us, bringing the invisible to bear upon what is visible. And not one of us is expected to do any of this by ourselves. I've heard some messages where people will make you feel bad for not healing anybody. It's like, well, well you sure clearly don't have enough faith, even though Paul said not everybody has every gift. But you partner with God. You are doing this alongside the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has lines in the Bible, guys. The Holy Spirit said, comma, quotation marks. He has an opinion. He has a plan. He wants to work with you to bring about God's will upon the earth. And since everything we're going to talk about this weekend concerns partnership with God and conversation with God, you shouldn't be afraid. Well, I, I like Jesus, but the Holy Spirit kind of freaks me out. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Here's a big word that we talk about when we talk about the Trinity. It's called perichoresis. It means mutual indwelling. Jesus said, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The, the Trinity indwells. The persons indwell one another. So that if you have the Holy Spirit within you, that's also the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of the Father. That interacting with one person of the Trinity is to interact with them all. So stop cutting it up. We don't divide the substance, Athanasius reminded us, right? If you love Jesus, y'all, you're going to love the Holy Spirit. If you love Jesus, you're going to love His Father. And in fact, if you've ever encountered God in this world ever, that was the Holy Spirit. Because that's His work in this day and age. We ought to be excited that the big long list of things I just went through is available for you. That's the kind of life that God has intended for you by His Holy Spirit. And prayer is, is the foundation of all those things. It's opening up a conversation with the one that can work these things out for you.
It's all about realizing the true supernatural nature of the world all around us. I am not a physicist, in case you hadn't picked up on that, but I am fascinated by the idea of dark matter. This is what physicists are basically saying is, the world is full of, it seems like it should be bigger. And it seems like there's this stuff that we can't detect that's like there, but we can't figure it out. That's why it's dark. We can't detect it, but we know that it should be there. How amazing would it be if we get to heaven and God goes, yeah, that was all my angels. <laughs> the stuff that you can't detect, yeah, but you know it should be there. But isn't that true in the spirit too? It's like, I feel like there's more to the world. I feel like there should be something else. I feel like there should be more to my Christian life. You're right. This conference is all about giving you permission to pursue the things of the Spirit. We want you to get excited about healing and excited about the gift of tongues. I've had to say this to some guys. Calvary Chapel is not reluctantly, yeah, okay, it's in there. We believe in the... No, we are pro-gift of tongues. This, I want to tell you a quick funny story. When I was in high school, a good friend of mine went to a, a rather excitable Pentecostal church, let's put it that way. And uh, I went to his birthday party at the church. And I got home, and Dad goes, they try to make you speak in tongues? And I go, no! And Dad goes, hold on a minute, though. He detected something in my answer. He goes, we, we like speaking in tongues, Tyler. And I go, oh, yeah. <laughs> He was, he was teasing them for their methods, but not for the substance of what they were bringing. We should get excited about angels. Yeah, there's some weird angel people, but our response is to be biblical angel people, to get excited about revival. You can't talk about revival without the Holy Spirit in the same breath. We're not going to get weird this week, but I'll tell you this. We're not going to spend all weekend warning you against excess. So I think this church has got that down. We're not excessive. What we need is more experience of what the Word teaches. Because we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We've been given an impossible task by our Lord. Obey Christ. Good luck. Edify the body unto salvation. Evangelize the whole world. That's impossible. But the good news is that our battle is not in the flesh. Ephesians 6.12 says we wrestle against the spiritual, the invisible. But blessedly, 2 Corinthians 10 tells us our weapons are in the spiritual and they're mighty. Let us learn what God has to say about these things. If you love God and you love the Bible, then you're going to love the supernatural aspects of the Christian life.